Welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast. Today I had a great discussion with Stephanie Sharp, who is a healthcare attorney with 15 years experience representing corporate clients and individuals on all matters impacting their business operations. She primarily focuses her practice on serving healthcare providers and has expertise in major healthcare regulations, including HIPAA, Stark, and anti-kickback policies. And that's what we talked about this week. Stephanie served as vice president and general counsel for Nebraska Medicine, and recently she left a large law firm locally to follow her passion, which is partnering with and advocating for individual healthcare providers and their practices as a solo practitioner. I hope you enjoy your conversation, and as always, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, and support those who support us. Think about you know we had a conversation this last week about um, the kind of healthcare trends and, and some of the things that you're seeing within physician groups in general or individual physicians in general and maybe even optometrists specifically. What kinds of things are you seeing that's a kind of a changing dynamic in in the healthcare world that uh, is requiring uh, optometrists and physicians in general to try to have to. Um, consolidate their practices or uh, aggregate together? What what sorts of things are you seeing there? Yeah, so, you know, I think that we've seen it nationally, and I like to talk about sort of national markets versus the Omaha market. I think Omaha's a bit unique, even Nebraska markets in general, just because of there's been some insulation in terms of keeping private groups private. Um, on the coasts and in larger cities, you've seen a lot more consolidation. Um, you know, I like to go back to sort of, you know, what it looked like the landscape 10 to 15 years ago. Um, you know, this is pre, if you live in Omaha, the uh, integration of Allegiant Health with Creighton. Uh, back in the day, I mean, margins were at the hospital, and I'm talking hospital, um, were double digits. So 12 to 14% growth year over year. And as you know, you know, physician groups generally staff and provide services to the hospitals, which is a, a revenue generator. Over the last 15 years, you've watched consolidation nationally. Um, and a lot of that is spurred by the fact that those margins that were 12 to 14 percent are somewhere around zero to negative one percent at most hospitals today. What, well, so why? So I'm sorry to jump in, but why is the, it the case that it went from so high, the margin so high down to so, I mean, basically breaking even? And, and I, I should say I should give that a caveat. I mean, that's not all systems. Sure, so sure. if you're local here, I mean, Methodist is doing a great job um, because they've got kind of a niche with the women's health. Um, but I think some of it is spurred from, you know, you've got the federal government now looking at the, the spend in the healthcare setting and saying, well, we need to curtail some of this. Um, obviously, they've done or implemented huge initiatives around, you know, the fraud and abuse, which mm -hmm. from a legal standpoint is waste, right? Where are we wasting money? So, you know, 10 years ago, you saw the advent of some of the, um, you know, reviews of medical billing, the, you know, they had all of the acronyms, the ZPIC, the RAC, the MIC. Mm -hmm. You know, the OIG was looking <laughs> at all these different areas to try to recapture costs. Um, you, saw, you saw it in the hospitals as, you know, looking at one-day stays for inpatient admissions. And, and there was a, you know, to the point that it got so backed up with the appeal process that they inevitably had to sort of instruct the um, middle or the, uh, the appeals process that, you know, hey, we're, we're backlogged. How do, we, how do we get past some of this? But we've seen a lot of oversight um, 
and a lot of you know government initiated and health plan initiated. So even your private insurers are saying, hey, you know, we can't pay for healthcare at this level. So how do we create quality? Yeah. Um, which is a lot of what you're hearing now. You know, the macro, all of the the talk about how do we create value. Um, I mean, you also see new payment models coming into play, right? So you have the fee for service where you're paying a subscription for one month of service, getting unlimited primary care, right. um, et cetera. So I think everyone in the market is trying to figure out how to provide care at a lower cost. Um, but the economics still being, you know, fee for service where you go in, you have a, uh, care provided and then a payment is made, they're trying to shift away from that model because it's become very expensive. Right. Yeah. And we're seeing that, you know, with things like hierarchical conditional coding where, you know, chronic diseases are getting um, things like ACOs or other payer groups or um, payment models, so to speak, where they're, uh, they're getting extra dollars to manage patients that have these more chronic conditions. So for example, we see it, you know, if uh, a patient comes in and they have, you might see that patient three or four times a year for maybe it's glaucoma, macular degeneration, cataracts, uh, dry eye, and um, and for whatever the acute care is, as well as their chronic management of those conditions. Well, it, it can be easy for us to just say, well, I'm going to lump um, because we get paid pretty much the same whether we bill for the ICD code as a cataract. Um, but the ACOs and other payment structures, they actually get reimbursed better at a higher rate. And your complexity for that patient that's being tallied over time is um, is greater when you're not just billing a cataract, but you're also linking on the fact that patient's a glaucoma suspect or has macular degeneration or has um, you know another chronic ocular disease. And so that uh, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it because we are sort of a we've, we've been conditioned for fee for service. And then how do you how do you understand how to manage a patient that has, let's say, a chronic disease like glaucoma in a situation where you may need to see that patient every six months or you may need to see them every three months because of the severity of their disease and the more specificity that we use in that coding uh, actually will uh, allow us to denote that that patient is a more complex patient. Do you see that across the board? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think you saw it when the, you know, ICD code sets changed even and they expanded it because they're trying to figure out how do they capture some of that complex complexity. And then, you know, what do you do with those patients who are more complex and how do you manage? So you see, you know, uh, care managers or nurse um you know, partners stepping in to try to help manage the truly, you know, um, sick that are on like sort of that continuum of having multiple comorbidities or multiple issues or multiple um, categorized illnesses, et cetera. So, um, but it's a challenge. I mean, I certainly, I think that even the payers, the people that are sitting behind the desks, you know, the Blue Crosses, the the other um, payers, insurance carriers, acuity, um, et cetera, are trying to figure out, you know, at how do we compensate for this? How do we evaluate this so that it's fair both to, to us, the patient, and the provider who's who's providing the service? Yeah, you know the 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 easy thing to do when when docs think about this stuff, I think, is to do one of two things. Is uh, and, and I think that's sort of the trend that we're seeing with people um, moving into sort of selling their practices or associating with a big uh, physician hospital organization and 
is that they do two things. One is they bury their head in the sand and just ignore it, pretend like it's going to go away. Or two, they just make decisions out of fear. So as an attorney that, that uh, helps optometrists and also physicians, you know, other physicians to kind of understand those, those um, pieces of the pie, what would be your advice to, maybe I'm missing another option, but what would be your advice to say, here's a way to step back, evaluate your place in the space. How do you become more effective at delivering care and at a better quality standpoint? What would you say to that? You know, I mean, here's the the truth behind it. I mean, I, I think it's, there's, like I've said, there's been this wave of physicians being acquired or merging in. And you know what, from a provider standpoint, I mean, what they want to do is take care of people. They don't want to have to worry about the back end of it. You know, all of the minutia of the practice management side can become cumbersome, you know, dealing Mm -hmm. with the HIPAA regulations, creating the policies and procedures, doing all that back end piece can become cumbersome. And so it can feel like an easy out to, you know, let someone acquire your practice and run it or, you know, merge yourself into a system or sell out. I think the challenge is, you know, it's it might be easier on the back end, but you also might be experiencing a series of, you know, oversight and rules that mm. don't always create efficiency. Mm. Um, a lot of the big systems want to create efficiency and they do that by creating, you, you know, or, uh, uniformity across all practices, thinking that that's the best way to do it. Well, if we have different markets or you have a different way of doing things, that can become problematic in a big system type setting. So, you know, I sort of encourage my independence to, you know, really evaluate whether the reduction in that administrative backend type work is worth mm-hmm. losing the autonomy over the practice, um, especially in the private equity setting, which is obviously sort of a hot area right now with the acquisitions of optometry groups and pulling them into larger organizations. I mean, generally, and, and you know, and back in the day before I really got heavy into healthcare, I did a lot of venture capital type work mm-hmm. uh, in a larger city. And you know, we all knew that when anyone's pouring money into any group, whether it's you know, um, an optometry group or any startup, they're looking for a return. They're taking yeah. an immense amount of risk on in order to achieve a return. The investors generally aren't passionate about healthcare or the delivery opt- of opt- optometry services. I mean, what they're looking for is that return. And so I think when you think about you know letting someone acquire your practice or selling out, you have to acknowledge that you know, their vested interest in is in a return. Hmm. And so that's what's going to happen. So I think you just have to be smart about the rationale behind it. I mean, if the goal is, hey, you know, I really don't like some of the back end office type stuff that I'm dealing with, you know, we have a family business where, you know, um, my mom actually got into running physician groups, right? Hmm. Helping them navigate that so that they can provide services in an independent facet um, where, you know, they've got this back end support, which I think, you know, in the optometry world, maybe there's, you know, something similar where, you know, we can find someone to sort of help or, or, you know, navigate those pitfalls. I mean, obviously as a, on the legal side and the compliance side, I mean, I, you know, have done that in my past, but I think some of it is just, you know, maintaining your direction and making sure that you understand fully what you're doing when you either, you know, move into the owned capacity or sell your practice. Yeah. Yeah. So then tell me, so that's very interesting. I didn't, I wasn't aware that, that that was what your mom's business was, was about is, um, because I think that would be a way for somebody to, as you say, stay independent, minimize the distance between the doctor patient relationship or the other outside influences on that doctor patient relationship so that you can continue to do what you think is best for the patient, but then sort of turn over, uh, some of the things that you don't 
enjoy or that you're not expert at doing that have become too much of a cumbersome uh, aspect for you. Absolutely. You know, and you've I've seen it done a few ways. You know, some people partner with just a billing company and that's mm-hmm. all they do is they're billing, you know, sending out the invoices and the AR and then they have an accounting aspect. Well, there's more to it, obviously, than that. I mean, there's the human component. There's the staffing. There's employee relations. There's negotiating at times, right, mm-hmm. with the payers, your your rates or other types of services and back-end functions that are occurring as you operate your business, really, running your business. It's more than just the billing is, I guess, what I'm saying. Um, and so I can appreciate sort of the need for that in the, in the um, independent space. And certainly that's sort of what she's built her business on and having grown up, you know, watching it um, has really impacted me and, you know, my practice today, which is you know, very much in line with that, which is representing individuals um, and really supporting my clients sort of as a partner to help them navigate, you know, not just the legal aspects or the compliance aspects, but also the business negotiation points and, you know, helping them create a strategy long term, et cetera. So that's really what I look for. And, you know, obviously a tangent, but something that, you know, I've learned from watching, you know, a family member grow her own little business in this space. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you think about negotiation, I think that's one of the things that you and I are, are kind of working on with, and in particular you are, uh, within the potential to deliver some of that uh, understanding to the Nebraska Optometric Association doctors. And that's how you and I uh, kind of became involved. And so the when you think about negotiating contracts in general, there's this sense, I think, among a lot of um physicians, including optometrists, and maybe it's even more on optometrists, but we have this sense that we don't we don't understand our value as well. So we don't understand our negotiation position uh, when it comes to a contract. A lot of times just like, here's a contract, sign it or leave it, you know? And I think there's a lot of times where we just decide, well, I'm going to either sign it or I'm not going to sign it. Can you kind of guide me through the, just some general points about how you can know whether an insurance company is willing to negotiate are in, insurance companies willing to negotiate by and large? What sorts of uh, power positions do providers, individual providers have that they can utilize to articulate their value to that system and maybe why they would want to justify a, a negotiated rate or other parameters within that contract that would be um, incentivized for the for the payer? Because a lot of times we just feel like, look, this is a huge payer. They can do whatever they want to do. I'm just a little guy. I can't. I don't really have any pull. But what what's your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of how most individuals or most small practices feel anytime they're going up against the bigger dog. You know, that said, I mean, there's the negotiation component of it and actually being able to change rates or change terms in the contracts. There's also the component of this, which is just understanding what Mm -hmm. it is you're signing, what you're signing up for and um, knowing whether, whether you can comply with all the terms that are outlined in that contract. I mean, you think about, for example, um, medical necessity as a defined term in a contract and people saying, well, I'm not going to pay for services that aren't medically necessary. What is medically necessary? That's a definition. And so sitting down and being able to understand what does that mean so that you can get reimbursed. I mm-hmm. mean, even if you know the rates are static or they've said, you know, we don't adjust our rates or whatnot, um, which you might get some pushback on that. I mean, certainly it's worth having the conversation. You just never know when the payer is going to make adjustments for you or whatnot, and ask the questions. I mean, let them know that you're not just here to blankly sign sign the form. Um, I think, obviously, there's some factors that will weigh in. I mean, the the vo- you know, volume of patients you're seeing, the the size of your, your firm. I mean, I think that 
from the um, insurance standpoint, I mean, they're looking to partner with providers who are, you know, in line with their goal of achieving, you know, quality care. Obviously, utilization becomes an issue. I mean, showing that is can be difficult for the provider. You know, how do you show that you are mm-hmm. providing quality care, et cetera? But I mean, that's certainly something that from an insurance company standpoint, they're looking to. So, you know, I think that there are some, you know, obviously negotiating the terms of the agreement, but understanding those pieces. Because once you understand the contract, then you can, as time goes on, figure out if there are ways that you can sort of, I mean, there will be trends and changes in these as we move more towards a quality type of a care. Um, you know, there's talk about creating sort of a fee for a life, right? Bundling mm. yeah. um, individuals into sort of a package and you take on all of that bundled group, right? So the partnership between the individual optometrists and their groups and the payers becomes really important. So I think you know, reviewing, analyzing, having a point of contact and not being afraid to discuss it, taking the time. I mean, um, this is this is your livelihood. So I think it's important to, you know, and it doesn't have to be a, a heated, long negotiation process, but certainly reviewing it and asking questions is important. Do you think, so I think there's one of the things that you and I discussed at lunch the other day was that um, there's this sense of eye doctors feeling like, or in general, any physician feeling like, well, I don't know if I want to get an attorney involved to look at this just yet. Um, is it worth the the dollars? You know, when you think about a contract um, and when it's always better to understand what's going on before you sign that contract as opposed to trying to come back afterwards, of course, right? And figuring out, well, why didn't I do this right? Or why didn't I do that right? But um, can you kind of share with me maybe some instances where on the front end or on the back end, you were able to look at a contract and, and say, this is a huge pitfall or man, you shouldn't assign this because this is why X, Y, and Z happened. Do you have any examples of that uh, throughout your, your practice that you think this is really a key one? Yeah. You know, I see it come up often with the audit rights and the capability of mm. the insurance provider carrier to step in and audit your practice you know, what that looks like, how often that occurs. You see it with the appeal process. If there's a denied claim and what are your rights? I mean, when when you get their form of agreement and you haven't even taken a look at it and you don't understand what are the repercussions if they tell you that they're not going to pay for some highly complex case that you saw right. at the rate that you saw. I mean, what are your appeal rights? I mean, I think it's important to look at the documentation requirements. What are they saying you have to have in the record? And at the end of the day, whose ultimate decision is whether that's sufficient for payment. I mean, some of those are just good questions to ask because, you know, when we don't take a look at it, when we don't step up, when we don't ask the question, it quickly becomes an instance where you're feeling compressed, right? Um, And I think that as more providers are willing to seek out assistance and ask those questions, the carriers are going to notice that. They're going to say, hey, you know, we've had the same person coming to us for seven, eight, ten different practices, Mm -hmm. getting wins on all these areas. You know, maybe what we should do is adjust this provision, we're getting so much pushback on it. Yeah. And then you see change happen. But change doesn't occur uh, globally or on a small scale unless people are willing to step back and push back a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we had, um, as a organization, the Nebraska Optometric Association has been always very good legislatively to be able to pass, pass legislation. But when it comes to other opportunities for regulation or enforcement of things that are outside of our own profession, it's been a little bit of a challenge because we understand how to regulate our profession, but other professions or other entities that are not licensed, it's hard to regulate them. You have to get um, 
you know, to get like the attorney general involved, those sorts of things, and, and those relationships become important. But one of the things that we saw recently that was very quiet, and the NOA hasn't really taken um, a lot of um, credit for this just yet, but we, a couple years ago, um, when we first engaged you, we had uh, approached a large payer in the state about some things in their contract that we weren't very happy about. It wasn't dollars. It was It was mainly just... Well, in particular, it was that they wanted a specific discount off of non-covered services. And so a lot of times it, across the country, we're seeing states that will pass legislation to remove that to, so that if a payer is not going to pay for something, they can't say, Stephanie, you need to give a 30% discount on this because uh, even though I'm not paying for it. And so we brought this to this big payer and we were thinking, well, we're going to have to have some legislation to deal with this and uh, and quietly within this new provider manual that they they uh, put out in July, it went away. That that provision just went away because I think they realized, well, this isn't really worth, we, they weren't advertising it to their, to their insured, right? They weren't coming out and saying, well, come sign up for our plan. You get this percent off of non-covered services at your eye doctor's office. They weren't, it wasn't, it wasn't anything that they were just passionate about. It was just something that they had in there that they thought, oh yeah, this is easy. We'll just it's sort of a throwaway and it doesn't cost us anything. And so a lot of times what you're saying is we, we asked, they didn't come out and then they didn't say it, but, but if you read the provider manual now, it's not in there, it's gone. So I think those kinds of things are things that um, have been beneficial for me to see, but you don't know unless you're reading that contract. And I guarantee there's still probably 90% at least of optometrists across the state that are probably giving that discount to that, to patients on that with that insurance for non-covered services because they, they're not aware. They didn't read the new manual. I love that example. I love that example. I mean, you, you unless you're willing to ask the question, and it can be as simple as asking the question, you'll never know what they're willing to budge on and what they're not. I mean, you know, I have negotiated hundreds of contracts for individual physicians adverse to large health systems over the years, and I've seen the same thing. Mm. You know, they all say, well, I don't want to be adversarial. I don't want to get myself into sort of a bind. I don't. I want them to think I'm playing as a team member. Well, you know what? We just adjust the back end of it. You know, I provide counsel directly to them and I say, hey, I would have a sit down conversation with them. I don't need to be in the room. Mm -hmm. They don't need to know that you have a lawyer sitting behind you and explain to them where I would see issues or where I would ask questions logically, mm. you know, not ad super adversarial can just be a very logical question, but you just don't know how far you can get on a lot of those business points that someone's just gonna you know, throw or slide across the table and say, hey, please sign. So I think that's a great example. I mean, it doesn't sound like you had to do an overly um, you know, extensive amount of pushback on it, but you got a good result. Right. You know, and I also think that your avenue of using your legislature and your lobbying, I mean, I think that's a fantastic way to make issues known. And, you know, I mean, obviously with every, you know, you have to be selective. You don't wanna be going there constantly, but if there are big issues impacting your, your profession as a whole and you want, greater protection. I mean, I think using that, you know, avenue of lobbying and giving your your legislative body, you know, insight into what you're experiencing is important as well. Yeah. You, you know, thanks. I, I, I agree with you. And I think it can be because we're such a strong um, advocacy legislative profession, historically, that's that tends to be where we go. But it, it, um, it it's it was just striking to me that that experience was that we didn't even have to we weren't even threatening legislation. We were just saying, look, this is something that 
we're seeing and 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 how quickly they they were able to just make it go away and and quietly of course uh the other thing that you brought up which i thought was interesting is that there is this um this idea of how do you intervene or how can they audit you or what what sorts of actions can they take there was a big issue with a big um vision payer so basically like glasses and contact lenses one of the biggest in the country they put in their contract that across the board no matter where you are those disputes need to be re- uh, resolved in based on california law so do you see that often where like i'm in nebraska i'm subject to nebraska law but because i signed a contract that is from a payer that's based in california i may have to actually if i would want to resolve that i'd have to find an attorney barred in california how does that all work yeah and that's another point i mean that's important generally you ask for you know venue where you're located sometimes they're will they're not willing to budge on it but i'll tell you and you see it especially in information security privacy etc i mean california is its own <laughs> jurisdiction i mean it's one you know i looked at actual admission in california the bar it's it's hard to get into the state one and then the rules and the, the laws there are just very unique and so you know if you're if you're accepting california law Hmm. I would steer clear of that. I mean, in some respects, you're you're creating an additional immense amount of legislation on top of what we're already experiencing. I mean, you've seen the there's warnings on everything out in California right. for its ability to cause cancer or whatnot. I mean, there's so much regulation out there that, you know, choice of law becomes important if California is your selected venue. I mean, the other option is obviously most large, you know, providers or payers uh, aren't going to want you know Nebraska law governing, but there's there's concessions. Delaware has a robust corporate law. Um, other states, so you can certainly push back and say, hey, are there other states that we could agree mm-hmm. to? Um, you know, I think the dispute resolution is also important if they're telling you that you have either binding arbitration or or what the what your rights are to appeal. So I think it's important to look at those. It's funny to me because you know they embed a lot of these really important provisions in sort of the very very tail end of a 40 page agreement with right. eight point font. And you know one of the big ones I see, and I don't know that it comes up right. It really wouldn't come up often in sort of the payer contracts, but in other contracts. Let's say you've got a business associate agreement in place, or you're sending information out to your um, third party. Uh, claims management company, the indemnification becomes important, and that's usually embedded somewhere knee deep in the contract. So, so. explain that to me a little bit. What does indemnification? Yeah. So mean? nobody like. I mean, it's very. It's a. It's a concept that basically states that I will make you whole for your losses. Hmm. I will indemnify you if you lose money, and and the damages can become. I mean, I like to quantify it. So there's various types of damages, right? There's economic damage. So if I lose patience or I can't, you know. Um, bill out for a service that's quantifiable quantifiable economic damage. There's also other types of damages, incidental um, and liquidated. I mean, so looking at these provisions, you have to look at sort of the type of damages that are included if there are and and for what for what purposes are you getting uh, indemnification? So so that would protect the physician in in those clauses. It would have indemnification for the physician as well as the or as well as Can the we, insurance company or it's typically just going to be the insurance company that's going to be in- included in those clauses? Generally, you're not. So I see these a lot actually in business associate agreements. Let's say that I'm a provider of okay. healthcare services. I'm considered a covered entity. Anytime that I send out patients' health information to another not, you know, and it's specified in the HIPAA regulations, but 
a third party contractor who might be providing you services, billing services. Right. They're seeing your PHI in order to provide you a service. There's a BAA included. Right. What happens if that company that you contracted with somehow uh, slips up and there's a release of your PHI, yeah, right? Yeah. There's huge fines and penalties. There's reporting obligations. There's reputational damage. If I'm the provider, I'm looking to that company to say, hey, make me whole. Right. HIPAA does not require indemnification mm. in its business associate agreements. Mm. So I'm just saying that there are things in the agreements and outside of the agreements that may be included, may not be included, that are things to think through. Yeah. Not just in your insurance contracts with the payers, but also in any service agreements that you might have for your billing system. Um, I had a client actually within the last month who was you know, looking to start his new practice, received a referral through a fax line. The fax ended up being linked to a random individual's Yahoo account. Mm. Luckily, they were able to spot that within the first week of his practice going live. But this patient sent a letter up to OCR and said, you know, Office of Civil Rights issued yeah. a formal complaint. They got a, you know, an inquiry back. And so we pulled up the agreement that they had in place with their um, medical, the uh, EMR yep. provider and had to look through what are his rights. Well, you know what? They disclaimed basically everything. He never mm -hmm. had anyone look look at it. He just signed of course, it. Of course, that's what we all do. And then when there was an actual issue and and luckily, I mean, it wasn't something that ended up having to be reported. He didn't have to do, you know, a formal breach notification right. or credit monitoring or all those expensive pieces yeah. that come into play if your PHI is breached. So his damages were low. But he really didn't have any recourse for that. And so this is why I think when you're going through these, um, you know, I'm looking at another contract this morning for another provider who's, you know, going to be providing services to, um, you know, one of the large systems. And I just think you need to think through some of this at the forefront. You yeah. know, an ounce of that prevention can really help you for, I mean, and unfortunately, you know, we're seeing more on the breach side with the HIPAA stuff and the privacy stuff. So that area especially is becoming important. Um, in addition to what you're seeing sort of on your provider contract side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could see how one of those, one of those kinds of situations, like you're saying, even with an EHR that, uh, you know, we use a cloud-based EHR and, and we assume it's a large one that, that many people across the country use. And, you know, we've signed, I'm sure we've, we've signed, I know we've signed different BAAs with them, but I, I tell you, I, I haven't read them. I mean, I haven't read them in depth and, so then it sort of makes you wonder. So then the next logical question is, okay, do I need to every single time I get a contract across my desk, I read it, but and I try to understand what it's what's going on, but do I need to get to the point where I'm just calling up you know, my healthcare attorney and saying, I'm calling up Stephanie Sharp and saying, Stephanie, will you just take a look at this? I mean, what what is the recourse that an independent has without being completely insane about um, everything that, you know, about all the minutia uh, and always worrying about that. Is there this sort of middle ground that, or, or you just have to be really diligent every single time? What, what do you think? See, I think they're actually, exactly to your point, there is a middle ground. I mean, not every agreement that hits your desk has to be heavily negotiated and something that you're going back and pushing back on for, you know, days, weeks, months, et cetera. I think, you know, if you look at it as a continuum, I think having one, you know, just step one, having a basic understanding of what you're signing. For larger contracts, your lease agreement for space, for example, or your EMR contract, the, the contracts where you're either sending important information or the dollar amount is high. I mean, I think that, or you're critically relying on something, whether mm -hmm. it's, even if it's low dollar, let's say that you're critically, critically relying on some piece of software to provide your services. 
I mean, those are important contracts to make sure you have reviewed. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't, I mean, everyone has this, you know, view, oh, it's going to cost me thousands of dollars to have this done. You know, I will tell you, you know, I am in private practice um, myself. And so I have a great appreciation for the individual provider who doesn't have thousands and thousands of dollars to spend on legal review. Yeah. And, and that's part of why, you know, I'm doing what I'm doing now on my own so that I can provide services at that level to people and, and just help them you know, navigate their business. I certainly don't think that everything has to be this huge belabored negotiation process. But sometimes I think it's good to ask the question. And I think up front, there might be a learning curve, right? You yeah. might have to call five or six times to say, hey, is this important? Is this not? Until you get a comfort level in what you maybe should send over and what you don't have to. But I think that it can be accomplished. But, you know, it's just a, sh a short learning curve there. Yeah. Yeah. We, well, you and I have also talked about, um, you know, some of the HIPAA provisions that people. Are, so a lot of what we're talking about with BAAs are also our HIPAA provisions. And so the. We've also talked about things that are sort of these unknown HIPAA provisions that really kind of get you. Like there was one instance where we had a patient that he wanted to review. So I wasn't aware this was in HIPAA at the time, but he wanted to review his entire chart. And then he wanted to make me make changes to what the chart said that weren't accurate based on our on what he filled out in his chief complaint history form or what uh, what was reflective of the examination itself. And so I, I was like, this is crazy. I don't have to comply with this. And then he was able to just like pull out these HIPAA provisions. I mean, this, so I, I was just, I thought this is crazy. Like not something that we think about with HIPAA. And, and yet it was like this huge sticking point where the patient could come back and actually make us edit his chart to reflect whatever he thought was in the chart. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think when you're thinking about HIPAA, we have to appreciate the fact that it is designed to protect the individual. Yep. So when you go through the business associate agreement or anything really on HIPAA, you'll see the requirements around what are the individual's rights, right? Individual has a right not to have their protected health information used or disclosed other than for XYZ purposes, other than to you know, XYZ person, they have a right to disclose an accounting of disclosures, right? So as a as a provider of services, that individual has a right to know where their information has been disclosed. They also have these individual rights to review their records mm -hmm. upon request and make changes. So certainly, yes, that all comes into play with HIPAA. I think the other piece that's really important that we don't maybe as attorneys talk about a lot is the high tech component of it. Mm. So HIPAA was enacted, you know, really designed to protect PHI. The, you know, 2013 rolls around, huge changes were made via the High Tech Act. And this really is designed to get at electronic PHI, right? But the way that we work today, everything's electronic. Yep. If you've got PHI in one form, it's gonna be electronic, right? So all of a sudden you now have this new body of regulation that governs how you can use and disclose ePHI. And the when you look to the, the high tech act i mean it's really uh unique because or i think it's unique because really it's it's all about the reasonable standard right mm. reasonable in light of the circumstances you're in and so you know people ask questions all the time hey you know do i need to send this uh this um phi picture via secure mail can i use other right right and people are very confused by it because there's really no clarity right it's a very loose or more of a facts and circumstance type of review. And unless you're seeing what's going on in the industry, 
you don't really know what the right answer should be. It's going to be mobile over time, right? As everyone moves to sending encrypted emails yep. with PHI, that then becomes the standard. So it's mobile and it, it's fluid. And so, you know, some of this, I think, you know, not having a clear and defined answer on everything is because that electronic component of this, the High Tech Act, isn't extremely prescriptive. Yeah. It's, it's really a judgment-based um, analysis. And so that's when, you know, you ha having a resource or someone you can just bounce an idea off. I mean, it doesn't take more than 10 minutes, but someone who practices in that area can quickly tell you, no, you should be doing this. Yes, you should be. Here's what I'm seeing industry-wide. Um, but certainly issues like that come up frequently. Yeah, I mean, common ones that I hear would be like, patient texts me. Right. They've got my cell phone because I've given it to them if they need anything after hours and they text me a picture of their eye. Can I now, because they've reached out to me through text that's not encrypted, can I now respond because that's been their chosen method of of response? Like this looks like it's X, Y, or Z. Well, how does that work? You know, here's what I like to do. I mean, if someone's texting you voluntarily, they are they're choosing to use an unsecured method. That said, I mean, I would I would let them know, hey, this is via text. It's not a secured portal. If you'd like to send these via, you know, whatever the my formal work email or whatnot, please send them here. That said, once they've sent it to you, I mean, they're taking the responsibility, um, assumption of the risk, right. right? That said, I mean, I think it's always wise if you're having ongoing and repeated conversations with someone to let them know, hey, just want to make sure you're aware that hmm. this is an unsecured method for sending these, you know, sensitive pieces of information. So just be cognizant of that. That said, I mean, from a, you know, regulatory standpoint. What they're going to say is, well, as long as the patient knew or advised, et cetera, and they're they're voluntarily, you know, sort of relinquishing that right, okay, you know, it's okay for you to do that. But yeah. I think that I don't know that the average consumer would really understand the difference even maybe between encrypted and non-encrypted. Right. Yeah. And then the other, the other, so that's that's helpful advice. I think the other thing that comes across every now and then I'll get a text or an email from somebody that that's just another doc and they'll say, you know, um, so-and-so doesn't seem like they're playing fair. And and they the the question really becomes, can I request documentation or prior records for a patient that I'm caring for without the patient's release of those records? So like let's say, you know, you're you're delivering care to a patient and that patient moves and now I'm delivering care to that patient but I forget to have that patient sign a record release. Can I reach out to you and say, I'm trying to care for this patient. Um, can you send me their records? You can, but in most instances, if that, that prior provider is trying to be cautious, they're going to be hesitant to release yep. those. That's going to be the issue. It's yep. less around, I mean, continuity of care type requests, fine. But I think in this day and age, it's very highly unlikely that anyone's going to release information without the patient's I mean, you see, even see it in the legal world where, yeah. you know, you've got a release for, um, you know, a uh, piece of litigation and people are like, eh, I actually need to have this issued by the court, court right. ordered, right? So, I mean, you can certainly try, but I think that you're going to get pushback. Yeah. And that's, and that, that's what we've seen. So the, but, but it's not technically in HIPAA to make it so that if it, cause it's, if it's required, if it's related to a patient's care, you can release that, but most people are still saying, I want the the official records released from the patient. Absolutely correct. And what, yeah, you're exactly on point. Um, they're just trying to make sure that they're jumping through all the hoops to protect themselves from inadvertently releasing. Right, right. And so if is there is there anything else that, as, as it's related to like healthcare contract negotiations or, um, or HIPAA that you think this is a common area of confusion or misconception uh, before we wrap up? 
you know, I guess common areas of misconception. I mean, I think the one that we've kind of touched on is just, you know, I feel like there is a general dis-ease around, you know, some individuals wanting to seek out assistance, whether they think they're going to look like they're not educated or asking for help or it's going to take too much time or it's going to take too much money. I just think that we need to break down those barriers Mm -hmm. um, and allow people to ask the questions and, you know, seek out legal help where needed, you know, acknowledge what they do, you know, what their specialty is, providing care, and then, you know, ask someone who's a specialist in certain areas to help them. And I I think that if we can, as a, you know, as a community of providers get to that point where there's not this huge barrier to asking for either legal review or someone else's opinion on, on various things that we're doing or saying or signing, I think we're going to move the entire profession forward. Um, Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think when you have a, a good relationship with anybody in general, it doesn't have to, my experience as, as we've talked about is, is that it doesn't have to be expensive. I mean, if, if I've engaged you in legal services for multiple things over the years, and then I have a like a quick question that I might need to ask, then in general, that's that's a, a pretty cost-effective way for me to get a, a valuable piece of information. And it opens the door to communication as opposed to like, just like here, do this for me, and then that's it. And And that's been really valuable for me to learn and I think that uh, I hope that more people understand that that those good relationships with a, a good healthcare attorney, when you can, when you're in more constant communication, not not constant, but in more frequent communication, it's not daunting and it's not, um, and it can be really quick to come up with an answer that's valuable as opposed to um, feeling like I've got to wait until it's this big thing to request and then I'm going to engage an attorney. Absolutely. Finding your business partner, someone who's going to partner with you as you do what you're doing, which is providing care to individuals who can just help you navigate that. I think that's extremely important. Awesome. Well, Stephanie, thank you very much for being on. And uh, maybe we'll do this again. Thank you. You're welcome.